Catechism. I begin as tradition advises with a question for the rabbi. How can the soul be free of its body? But God knows they haven't ordained women long. Her eyes are still bright. She leans forward, peers into mine. Why would you want to? Because it's there to be climbed. Because I'm nearly 40 and it's getting harder to stay thin, wake rested, not weep in the afternoon. It says shame and eat. It's an imbecile rocking itself to sleep at five in the morning as if wind has no sway, trees turning above us, and March air so wild you know the invisible exists. She leans back. I can't tell if she smiles or frowns. What makes you want to see the invisible? How would you know the wind without flesh, hair? I would be wind, I say. But now this rabbi and woman form looks hard at me. Then wind would change into fire. You torture yourself. But the body slumps and whines. It's a dog, I say. Her ears prick up. I know what she's thinking. So feed it, she smiles. Let it keep you warm. At night, when its legs twitch, when a sound breaks from its throat and wakes you, listen. The Heavy Bear Who Goes With Me by Delmore Schwartz. The heavy bear who goes with me, a manifold honey to smear his face. Clumsy and lumbering here and there, the central ton of every place. The hungry, beating, brutish one in love with candy, anger, and sleep. Crazy factorum disheveling all, climbs the building, kicks the football, boxes his brother in the hate-ridden city. Breathing at my side, that heavy animal, that heavy bear who sleeps with me, howls in his sleep for a world of sugar, a sweetness intimate as the water's clasp, howls in his sleep because the tight rope trembles and shows the darkness beneath. The strutting show-off is terrified, dressed in his dress suit, bulging his pants, trembles to think that his quivering meat must finally wince to nothing at all. That inescapable animal walks with me, has followed me since the black womb held, moves where I move, distorting my gesture, a caricature, a swollen shadow, a stupid clown of the spirit's motive, perplexes and affronts with his own darkness, the secret life of belly and bone. Opaque, too near, my private yet unknown, stretches to embrace the very dear with whom I would walk without him near, touches her grossly, although a word would bear my heart and make me clear stumbles, flounders, and strives to be fed, dragging me with him in his mouthing care. Amid the hundred million of his kind, the scrimmage of appetite everywhere. 
Blossom by Mary Oliver. In April, the ponds open like black blossoms. The moon swims in every one. There's fire everywhere, frogs shouting their desire, their satisfaction. What we know, that time chops at us all like an iron hoe, that death is a state of paralysis. What we long for, joy before death, nights in the swale, everything else can wait but not this thrust from the root of the body. What we know, we are more than blood. We are more than our hunger, and yet we belong to the moon. And when the ponds open, when the burning begins, the most thoughtful among us dreams of hurrying down into the black petals, into the fire, into the night where time lies shattered into the body of another. How easy it would be if we had all of the answers just written on a big mountain on the horizon. All the answers for everything. But that is not the world we have. We get to muddle through, asking one another, turning to the teachings of science, turning to wisdom traditions, and looking inward to find the answers we seek to all questions big and small. Today, as we approach what I've heard called the winter eating season, uh, I'm preaching on gluttony and related topics as part of our worship series on the seven deadly sins and the seven heavenly virtues. I don't believe that the holy is up there pulling strings in particular ways, but I have to tell you that whatever higher power might exist has quite a sense of humor because this week I was struck down with some food poisoning and was trying to write this sermon as I recovered (laughs) when I didn't want to do anything that had to do with food. And here I was, giving it care and thought. So food is hard for many of us. It can be a source of power and pain. And many of us have complicated, contradictory relationships with food that's wrapped up in the complicated, contradictory relationships we have with our bodies. We have been told by the world and by people we trust that if parts of our bodies were bigger or smaller or there were less of us or more of us or something, if we were different in some way, we'd be more worthy of love. We'd matter more. We'd be more important. And so many of us have internalized at least some of those voices and now repeat them in our internal monologue. If only my body were different, if only I lost some weight, if only, if only. And if you hear only one thing today, let it be this. Your worth is unrelated to a number on a scale or on the tag of the clothes you wear. You are not what you eat. We are our bodies and we transcend them. All of our bodies are precious and powerful. And as I talk about gluttony, I'm not going to tell you to eat this or eat that. Nutrition science is trying to answer those questions for us, 
and I have no particular insight. And I share reading all the headlines that tell you this week butter is good, and next week it's bad, and this week you're supposed to drink wine, and next week you're not. Because nutrition science is really, really difficult. Alan Levinovitz is a scholar who approaches Americans' relationship with food from a religious studies perspective, which is really interesting. And he writes about how hard nutrition science is to do well and how we're always seeing these studies that contradict each other. He writes, The problem here is that running a few studies doesn't prove or conclusively show anything. Good nutrition science depends on the long, slow accumulation of data over many, many studies, something scientists themselves know very well. And they are highly skeptical, or should be, of single studies, in part thanks to a celebrated paper by Stanford professor John P. A. Ioannidis, which is entitled, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. <laughs> His conclusion, summarized in the title, explains what's really happening with the steady stream of scientific reversals on butter, wine, whatever food appears in the latest headline. In truth, there are no reversals because nothing was ever established in the first place. And paradoxically, our faith in science makes it difficult to identify and dismiss lies about nutrition. Food seems like it should be simple to study. If we can put a man on the moon, transplant a heart, manipulate DNA, then surely we can unpack the relationship between eating vegetables and living longer. There is no obvious difficulty in figuring out if wine decreases the risk of heart disease or if red meat increases the risk of colon cancer. Just look at the people who drink wine or eat red meat and compare those, them to those who don't. It should be easy. But in fact, there's probably no branch of medicine more difficult or complicated than nutrition science. <clears throat> the complexity that plays out in the endless controversies about what and how much we should eat. High-quality studies of dietary practices are incredibly hard to design. How do you make up a, pl a placebo piece of meat for your control group? <laughs> studies on the effects of diet and lifestyle in large populations are no less difficult. They depend on recollection and self-reporting, which is notoriously unreliable. And even if that data were accurate, well, you can just tweak an equation, exclude a set of data points, isolate a different factor, and suddenly vegetarianism goes from increasing longevity to decreasing bone density. So science doesn't really have good advice about what we should be eating. And the question that I want to explore is how can food be a source of joy and connection in our lives? How can we use food to promote and live our values? And how can we feel more at home in our bodies and in the world? So if we can't trust the nutrition scientists, at least not fully, who can we trust? There aren't any magical diets out there, but, the advice for how to approach food, but there is advice on how to approach food in healthy and life-giving ways. One resource is the American Academy of Pediatrics. Earlier this fall, this professional group released guidelines for how to help children and adolescents avoid eating disorders, other unhealthy practices, and I would add the pain of not feeling worthy in this world. And while these guidelines are for young people, I believe we can all try them. 
the first guideline is no diets. The more a person diets, the more likely they are to develop unhealthy eating habits or disordered eating. When a person diets, so much energy and attention and power is given to food, and it becomes a place to play out power and control in our lives. And that's especially happens if other parts of life feel uncontrollable. So being mindful of food, eating when one is hungry and not when one isn't, and trying generally to eat a variety of foods is a much better path than diet and strict restrictions. The second guideline is to have family meals. It is important for us to eat together with our families and others that we love, to have food be a source of community and connection, as well as physical nourishment. The third guideline is no weight talk. This is hard for many of us. So many of us, especially those of us who are socialized as women, we're taught that when someone loses weight, you compliment them on it, because that is a good thing that they've done. And amongst ourselves, we complain about how if we lost a few pounds, things would be different. And children and others hear this, and it teaches them that weight matters a lot, that it's something to fret over, that it's something to monitor. And weight talk, even when it's meant as a compliment, contributes to unhealthy relationships to food in our bodies. So it's better for ourselves and for our children to talk about health rather than weight. And this is really hard. Ever since I heard this guideline, I've tried to take this out of my vocabulary. And I've really been struggling. It's so ingrained in our culture that this is something we talk to each other about. And the final related guideline is to avoid weight-related teasing. The sort of of teasing is often meant with love and affection. And intentions might be positive and loving, but we know that intention is not impact. Our intentions do do not determine if our actions are hurtful. Weight-related teasing, again, reinforces that the size of our bodies are worthy of our attention and constant monitoring and are what matter. It, again, is tied to an increase in unhealthy practices. Food is a powerful force in our lives. We need it to survive. And it can too easily become a source of pain, disorder, and illness. Food is also a realm where we can enact our deeply held values. Values like purity and justice. Food choices have long been a way to ritualize purity, both on an individual level and as a way of drawing boundaries between communities. Food is an easy way to mark who is inside and who is outside. Difference is often described in the language of food. Anthropologists have collected dozens upon dozens of food-based insults that groups use to draw firm boundaries between us and them. They say, oh, those people are cannibals, or pork eaters, or sweet potato eaters, how dare they, turtle eaters, frog eaters, locust eaters, even elephant eaters. We describe who is foreign by highlighting how their food practices are different than ours. Additionally, almost every wisdom tradition has rules about what is acceptable to eat. Hindus don't eat beef. Catholics traditionally avoided meat on Fridays. Muslims follow halal dietary practices, and Jews keep kosher. And many of these rules have served historically to draw boundaries between who is part of a group and who is not. As dietary laws can make 
require a lot of care and attention and can make it very hard to share a meal with someone who doesn't practice as you do. And that, and there's some real strength in that. That's one way to preserve a community in the face of overwhelming oppression and pressure to assimilate. And it separates us. We also enact pure, personal notions of purity in how we eat. There are, of course, people who avoid gluten or peanuts or so many other things out of medical necessity. Their diet needs to be pure of allergens or irritants for them to exist in this world. And I'm not talking about that, but about the things we avoid to help us feel pure and moral. I have lived this. For about two years in my early adulthood, I stopped eating apples. I'd spent a few summers with farm workers in central Washington state, and I saw the really heartbreaking conditions that a lot of them were living in, people who harvested apples, cherries, hops, and other fruits and vegetables. And every time I ate an apple, I was reminded of the people sick from overexposure to pesticides and people living in makeshift camps because there was no housing. And so I stopped eating apples so I wouldn't have to be reminded of the people who are suffering so I could eat. I distanced myself and purified myself of that issue, and it took me an embarrassingly long amount of time to realize that my actions didn't actually help anyone. It just separated me from that issue. I wasn't motivated by compassion, but by my own sense of purity. My decisions to not eat apples didn't improve farm workers' living conditions. It just made it so I didn't have to think about them. Confusing compassion and purity is a trap that those of us who live in privilege have to be wary of. Not eating apples was not compassion. It was an attempt to free myself from that contaminant posed by being in relationship with people who were suffering so I could eat. And separating ourselves from other suffering and alleviating other suffering are not the same things. There are, however, ways to use our personal food choices to make our values real in the world. And unlike my avoidance of apples, there are efforts that are organized and have real impact and actually make a difference in the world. They are about making change, not about personal purity. When people join together, we are more powerful than we can ever be alone. And there are a lot of efforts to have a more just food system in our world. And one of them can be found in our foyer every Sunday. The coffee we serve here and the coffee and chocolate we sell here are fair trade. We know that people who produce it are treated fairly and compensated fairly. This, that is how we use our choices about food to make the world a little bit better. And I hope we can also engage food in ways that, that makes our lives more joyful. We can remember that we are not what we eat. We are more than that. Our bodies are precious and powerful and do not determine our worth as humans. We can nourish our bodies and experience joy. So as the winter eating season commences, I want you to remember that our bodies are precious and powerful and to find nourishment and joy in what you eat. We know that the culture, the mainstream American culture that we live in, promotes an unhealthy relationship with food and bodies. We also know that there are other food cultures that show us that another way is possible. A psychologist named Paul Rosen conducted an experiment that illustrates this. People from America and France were asked to work, 
to word associate with chocolate cake. And the Americans chose guilt, and the French chose celebration. <laughs> and in his conclusion, he says, there's a serious difference between our food cultures, which we've shown again and again, and it, ha- and it doesn't come down to scientific evidence that we've got and they don't. It's something else. So what would it look like to embrace another approach to food, a more celebratory approach, to view our dietary indulgences, the things we love to eat, as a chance for celebration and not guilt? It would mean that as we prepare for Thanksgiving and other winter gatherings, we anticipate the plates of turkey and potatoes and cranberries and pie or whatever it is that you will be eating as celebration and connection not calories. Gratitude, not guilt. Joy, not weight. It would mean that we eat because we're hungry, not because, not because it we're in the words of theologian Frederick Buchner, raiding the icebox for a cure of spiritual malnutrition. It would mean that we know in our heart of hearts that however much we or others eat or don't eat and whatever size our bodies are or others' bodies are, we are precious and we are powerful. And as I close, I want to remind you that our young adult group has given us a chance in just a few minutes to make these values real. We get a chance to eat together in a way that promotes our values. When the service ends today, we will be gathering in this space to eat together at their fundraiser for the Standing Rock Water Defenders. So let us know today and every day that food can be nourishment and joy and a way to make our values real in the world. Let us fuel our bodies for the important work ahead. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.